Once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends on the island of Jersey have done. Yes, that's right. We now have listeners on a tiny island in the English Channel. Well, hey, I think that's pretty damn cool anyway, so welcome aboard. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First off, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to check out episode number 10 of the Rundown Wrestling Podcast Nitro Mania series, because I appeared on it along with my friend Adam, and we broke down Halloween Havoc 1995 and the subsequent episode of Nitro for just about two hours. The link to that show will be in the episode summary for this podcast, so you can just click on over and listen to it. Definitely check it out, because I thought it was a damn fine episode. Also, a quick announcement, I will have a special guest on the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast. Bill, one of the hosts of Tuning Japanese, will be stopping by to cover an episode of Raw, which features a very famous and hilarious segment. In case you need some background info on Tuning Japanese, it's a podcast where three guys review anime, and Bill is goddamn hilarious on it, so I'm looking forward to having him on the show. And don't worry, folks, in addition to being a big anime fan, he's also a huge wrestling fan as well, so fear not, because the man knows his shit. In the meantime, give Tuning Japanese a listen, and please note that the word tuning is spelled T-O-O-N-I-N-G, as in cartoon. Check it out. Alright, so, with that being said, let's get into this week's episode. However, before we dive into Raw, I'm going to spend a moment recapping the pay-per-view from the night before, break down the 24th pay-per-view under the In Your House banner. And for a pay-per-view that most people probably forgot existed, this actually turned out to be a very important show. It was broadcast live on Sunday, September 27th, 1998, in front of a sellout crowd of 17,405 fans at the Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And in case you're wondering, this is indeed the only WWF slash WWE pay-per-view to ever be held in Hamilton. The first ever Royal Rumble in 1988 took place in this same building, but it was shown on the USA Network and not on pay-per-view, so now you know. And right off the bat, I have to give a massive tip of the cap to the Hamilton fans, because not only was the crowd hot throughout the night, but they also brought a ridiculous amount of quality signs, and here's a quick list. Edge thinks he knows me. Owen's not a nugget, he's the shit. Vince, please fire Shane. Obviously, someone else was not pleased with his commentary last week. X-Pac, enough with the steroids. Lawler is a diddler. A sign that just said, fuck. Good job sneaking that past security. Rock hard with a cartoon picture of an erect penis. Sable, you, me, burrito. And Undertaker's not a homo. Ask Your Mama, which is presumably a callback to an infamous sign from the 1997 Survivor Series, which simply stated, Undertaker is not a homo. 
I'm glad several fans have felt the need to clarify that. So before we kicked into the pay-per-view itself, we had three pre-show matches on Sunday Night Heat. Golga defeated Headbanger Mosh. The Disciples of Apocalypse defeated Billy Gunn in a two-on-one handicap match. And Kayentai members Funaki and Teo took on a young, up-and-coming tag team. And their opponents at a combined weight of 531 pounds from Cameron, North Carolina, Jeff and Matt, the Hardy Boys. Now, for the record, this was not the Hardys' debut in the WWF. They had actually wrestled a handful of matches in 1997 on Raw and Shotgun Saturday Night, where they were basically jobbed out at every turn. But this is the first time they've come close to sniffing a pay-per-view appearance. So I get the feeling that there may be bigger things on the horizon for them. And sure enough, they even scored the upset victory over Kai and Tai on this night, so already their fortunes are picking up because they actually won a match. I guess you could say their losing streak has finally been... broken? Okay, now that we've covered heat, let's get into... Breakdown! Our first match was Edge taking on Owen Hart, Canadian versus Canadian. In fact, both guys got massive pops because Owen is Owen, and he's awesome, while Edge was announced as being from Toronto, which is less than half an hour from the arena. This was a really nice match, and it actually had a very interesting finish as a quote-unquote fan with long blonde hair entered from the crowd, stood at ringside, and stared down Edge. Who is this? Who's this guy? I've got a fan across the rail here for security. Who's that guy? Looks like security down here. Looks like Edge! So there you have it, a distraction from a fan allows Owen Hart to pin Edge for his first loss in the WWF. I'm sure you can probably figure out who that stranger was, but I won't tell you just yet. Don't worry, it will be revealed to us very soon. In our second match, the team of Al Snow and Scorpio defeated Too Much, and I forgot to mention this a few episodes ago, but there's a bit of a surprise here. There are no more Too Much matches on Monday Night Raw. That's it. They're done. We won't be seeing too much on this podcast anymore. Spoiler alert, though, they'll eventually be repackaged next year. But until then, they're basically just fixtures of Sunday Night Heat and Shotgun Saturday Night. Too much? Too bad. In our next match, Mark Merrow picked up a victory over Dr. Oz. Oh, wait, sorry, that should say, that should say draws. That's actually far less interesting. So Merrow actually got the victory by hitting draws with his version of the shooting star press called Marvelocity, and this was noteworthy for two reasons. Number one, Merrow's foot actually grazed the top ring rope on his way down, so he's lucky he didn't injure himself or draws. And number two, when Merrow leaped off the turnbuckle to go for the move, a fan set off an air horn right when he jumped, so it was almost like there was a sound effect accompanying it. I know that doesn't necessarily sound funny, but go back and watch it. It's hilarious. Will we see Marvelocity here? Our next encounter was Vader going up against the now mustacheless Bradshaw in a Falls Count Anywhere match, and, of course, because he's JBL, he cut a pre-match promo where he took personal pot shots at his opponent for no apparent reason. 
Bradshaw, your match against Vader tonight. No holds barred. Falls count anywhere. One fall to the finish. It isn't going to be pretty. Hell no, it's not going to be pretty. I didn't come here to wrestle that fat bastard. I came here to fight him. Vader, you're fixing to find out. Oh. It's survival of the fittest, not the fattest. Well, I apologize, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, choice of language by uh, the large Texan. One thing you can say about him, his dickishness has always been consistent. And as you might expect, Vader does the J-O-B to J-B-L, which is just kind of sad. I mean, losing clean to post-new Blackjack Bradshaw, you might as well just shovel the dirt on the man's career right now. In our next match here at Breakdown, the now former European champion D'Lo Brown picked up a victory over Gangrel in a rare heel-versus-heel match thanks to outside interference from Mark Henry. And yes, for those of you scoring at home, that marks Gangrel's first loss in the WWF just a little more than one month after his debut. Also, props to the fan who held up the sign during Gangrel's entrance, which said, quote, D'Lo versus Gangrel, who cares? To which I say, I, I actually kind of cared about the match. I guess maybe it was just me. After that, we had a steel cage match between The Rock, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock. You may recall that these three men fought each other on Raw to determine who would become the number one contender to the WWF title, but The Undertaker and Kane interrupted the match, beat the shit out of all three guys, and we never got an actual winner. Presumably, a steel cage will serve to keep out any intruders tonight. And, in case you're wondering, yes, they are still using the classic blue bar steel cage for this match, which is always nice to see. So while the stagehands were constructing the cage, we went backstage for three separate promos from the participants in the match. Shamrock was dull as hell, as is the trend for him, and Rock was his usual entertaining self, saying that Shamrock and Foley have, quote, too much sugar in their testes, but then we got Mankind's promo, and, well, I'm just going to play it for you here, because I thought it was hilarious, and the best of the three. Mankind in tonight's cage match, it appears Ken Shamrock is looking for blood, and The Rock is looking for glory. What are you looking for? Well, Kevin Kelly, I'm looking for an end to world hunger, but I don't really expect to have that happen during this match, but I'm going to overlook the stupidity of this question because I'm used to stupidity all my life. When I broke JoJo Miller's guns because I wanted them, in retrospect, that was probably a stupid thing. When I saw a grown man urinating on an electric fence, I thought that that was a stupid thing. The president of this country sacrificing a nation for a girl that even I would have turned down in high school is probably a stupid thing. But of all the stupid things I've seen in my life, nothing rivals the people's elbow for sheer stupidity. So if you think that mankind in a pay-per-view match inside a steel cage is going to lay down and sell that abortion, well, you're even stupider than I look. Again, Shamrock, as far as you looking out for blood, well, I have news for you. You see, I have trained inside the museum with spaceman Frank Hickey, and I am ready. Sugar-coated testes. Is that a new breakfast cereal? As if we needed another reason to love Mick Foley. So for the record, Shamrock gets a lot of booze and Mankind gets a really nice pop, but The Rock is massively over with the fans. I mean, there are zillions of Rock signs in the crowd tonight, along with a bunch of Rocky chants as well. These fans are fully embracing The Rock's face turn, for certain. And for the record, despite what Mankind said in his promo, he did indeed end up selling the people's elbow. 
In fact, Rock actually hit Mankind and Shamrock with a double people's elbow at the same time, which the crowd absolutely came unglued for. I think this Rock fellow may have a future. At one point, Mankind also attempted to reenact his cage leap from SummerSlam 1997, which the crowd also went ballistic for, but The Rock moved out of the way, causing Foley to crash and burn. From there, Shamrock attempted to crawl out the cage door, but Foley grabbed his foot. However, Shamrock was able to grab the steel chair that the referee had been sitting in, so when Foley dragged him back inside the cage, Shamrock brought the chair with him. He swung the chair at Mankind, but missed, so Foley took it and clobbered Shamrock in the head with it, because it's 1998 and concussions don't exist in the WWF. From there, Mankind made the mistake of attempting to climb out of the cage, but while he was doing that, The Rock simply covered Shamrock and scored the three count before Foley could climb down to the floor. Your winner and the new number one contender for the WWF Championship, The Rock. And it now appears that the People's Champ is one step closer to becoming the actual champ, so I guess we'll see how that progresses. Our next match was Val Venus versus Dustin Runnels, and to add further insult to the preacher, before the match began, Val brought Dustin's wife Terry out from backstage, and, uh, let's just say the outfit she was wearing was not conservative. Val and Terry then grinded all over each other in front of her husband, to which I must once again ask, how the hell is Dustin the heel in this equation? Good lord. And to bury Dustin even further, Val got the clean win when he came off the top rope and hit him with the money shot, and in case you were wondering, yes we did get the accompanying air horn from the crowd for this spot as well. I'm sorry, but that will never not be entertaining. And after the match, Val and Terry made out in front of Dustin again, because, you know, they're the good guys in this feud. Yeesh. Next up, we had a six-man tag team match, Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice versus new WWF European Champion X-Pac and the WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws. I will note that DX is featured prominently on the poster for this pay-per-view, including WWF Intercontinental Champion Triple H putting two flashlights over his crotch for some reason, but Hunter is not at all featured on this show, nor was he on the episode of Raw before the pay-per-view due to the fact that he had knee surgery. Ouch. Also, since Billy Gunn previously fought on Sunday Night Heat, this marks the second consecutive show where Mr. Ass wrestled twice in one night since he did the same on last week's episode of Raw. It appears as though they may be trying to give Billy a bit of a push here, and to further back that up, he actually ends up scoring the winning pinfall in this match when he hits Dennis Knight with what Jim Ross calls a rocker dropper. Thankfully, it was not yet given the horrendous name, the Famasser. Fun match, but hey, WWF, to paraphrase Regina George from the movie Mean Girls, stop trying to make Billy Gunn happen. It's not going to happen. And now it's time for our main event WWF Championship match, Champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker versus Kane in a triple threat match, which is basically a two-on-one handicap match since the Brothers of Destruction are not allowed to pin each other. As you might expect for a match like this, it was basically two sections done multiple times. Either Austin was fending off both brothers, or The Undertaker and Kane were beating the crap out of him. However, one of the main storylines going in was whether or not the Brothers of Destruction would eventually start fighting amongst each other, and as it turns out... They did. There were several times when The Undertaker tried to pin Austin, so Kane broke up the pinfall, and vice versa. Eventually, tensions boiled over, and the two brothers started fighting each other, so it appeared as though Stone Cold may have actually been able to overcome the odds. 
However, Taker and Kane did end up putting their differences aside, and about 22 minutes into the match, they each grabbed Austin by the throat simultaneously, so let's pick it up from there. So after the double choke slam, The Undertaker and Kane pinned Stone Cold at the same time, resulting in confusion as to who actually won the belt. However, before we could get an answer from Howard Finkel, Gerald Briscoe ran down to ringside, snatched Austin's smoking skull belt, and ran it up the aisle where he presented it to Vince McMahon. The chairman then ran backstage and hopped into a limousine as Austin fought his way through the Stooges to chase him. With the limo safely out of reach, Vince held up the belt and yelled at Austin, You don't have it anymore! It's mine! We then got the famous visual of Vince flipping Austin off while holding the belt in his other hand, and the limo then drove away. And that was Breakdown. And indeed, Vince McMahon's master plan worked. Stone Cold Steve Austin is no longer the WWF champion. But who is? Is it The Undertaker? Is it Kane? And what about the fact that The Rock is now the number one contender, but he seemingly does not have a champion to face? So many questions to answer, but we'll get to those on Monday Night Raw. However, before we dive into Raw, a few quick statistics. Breakdown ended up achieving 315,000 pay-per-view buys, which was 40,000 more than WCW's Fall Brawl from two weeks prior, where the Warrior competed in a WCW ring for the first time. Not only that, but when you compare Breakdown to last September's WWF pay-per-view Ground Zero, it literally almost doubled the buy rate, as Ground Zero only garnered about 161,000 buys. All in all, I think the WWF had to have been extremely happy with this show, because it was actually quite good, and hey, when you can double your buy rate from the same time the previous year, I think you'll take that any day. And so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, September 28th, 1998, and we are live from Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, Michigan, in front of 14,517 fans. Some of the other noteworthy shows which have taken place in this arena include the 1991 Survivor Series, the 1999 Survivor Series, the 2009 Royal Rumble, and the February 2016 episode of Raw, where Shane McMahon returned to the WWE after a seven-year absence. One other noteworthy event which took place in Joe Louis Arena was WCW's Halloween Havoc 1995, which, as I mentioned before, I discussed in depth on the Rundown Wrestling Podcast Nitro Mania show. And I repeat, be sure to check that out if you haven't already, because it's now available, and I think it's a great two-hour talk fest on that particular disaster of a pay-per-view. Be sure to click that link in the episode description. Also, one more quick side note, back here in the present day, the Joe Lewis Arena recently closed forever on July 30th, 2017, after 38 years of being in business. But don't worry, it will be replaced by the Little Caesars Arena. Gotta love that corporate sponsorship, huh? 
So we begin Raw with a montage recapping Vince McMahon's master plan, which, for some reason, features Albert Einstein, John F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr., along with footage of the Austin-Vince feud from the past few months. From there, for the third week in a row, we do not queue up the opening credits, the pyro, or the obligatory scanning of the crowd, and instead we just go right into the show. However, I will of course mention some of the noteworthy signs in the crowd, including My nuts itch Eat a dick, Vince What's wrong, Austin? You look stunned Duck, my sick Sable, show me your tatas, very subtle Four words for ya Suck it and swallow Vince, hire me, I'm silicone free And perhaps one of the more offensive signs we've seen so far Goldberg fears Hitler And, you know, I'm thinking that one probably should have been confiscated. I mean, come on, security. How did you let that one get displayed on camera all friggin' night? Jesus. The show begins with Stone Cold Steve Austin's music playing, but instead of the former WWF champion coming out, it's Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter, and they're flanked by a team of eight police officers. They all enter the ring, and Vince is proudly draping Austin's smoking skull belt over his shoulder. The chairman grabs a mic and says that maybe the next time when he makes a guarantee, the fans will listen to him. In fact, that's all he ever wanted from Stone Cold. He just wanted him to listen to reason, but Austin had to play by his own rules. Vince then tells us that, unlike the last time when Austin lost the belt in June, this time around, there will be no rematch. However, Vince isn't such a bad guy because, in honor of Austin's career, he is naming tonight Stone Cold Steve Austin Knight. He says that he will even have police officers waiting for Austin when he arrives to make sure he has easy access to the arena. And that's not the only reason for celebration, because tonight, a new World Wrestling Federation champion will be crowned. Vince then goes on to point out that the new champion will be awarded the real WWF title, not the Smoking Skull belt. He then proclaims that the only place where that belt will be going is, quote, "...above my fireplace, on my mantle, in one of my homes." Commissioner Slaughter then fastens the smoking skull belt around Vince's waist, and the chairman says that he hopes Stone Cold will join the ceremony later tonight when the new WWF champion is crowned. We then cut to a shot of our commentators for the evening, Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. They run down some of the matches for tonight, and, amusingly, we see a fan with an Al Snow mannequin head jump into the shot behind them, followed immediately by a security guard yanking him right out of the shot. Pretty hilarious. Our first match of the evening is for the WWF Tag Team Titles, Champions the New Age Outlaws versus Challengers Southern Justice, accompanied by Jeff Jarrett. However, before the match begins, Jerry Lawler has a few words for us. You may recall that JR and The King were away last week filming the Andy Kaufman biopic Man on the Moon, starring Jim Carrey, and reports circulated around this time that Lawler and Carrey got into a legitimate fight on the set. Lawler tells us that what's being reported in the media isn't accurate because if he had attacked Jim Carrey, he would still be in the hospital right now. Lawler then says he will go into further depth about the incident when Jim Carrey himself shows up on Raw. Yeah, go ahead and file that one under Nice Try. Jim Ross also had a couple DX injury updates for us. X-Pac was injured last night at breakdown when Jeff Jarrett broke a guitar over his head, causing a splinter to get in his eye, but he'll be good to go later on tonight. Also, as mentioned before, Triple H had surgery last week to repair his injured knee, and JR tells us he's going to try to tough it out, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. So anyway, back to the Outlaws versus Southern Justice. 
The finish of the match came when Billy Gunn hit Dennis Knight with the rocker dropper, but Jeff Jarrett slid into the ring with his guitar in an attempt to break up the pinfall. Instead, however, the road dog booted him out of the ring and snatched the guitar away. Billy then set up Knight for a pile driver, but before he could deliver it, Road Dog smashed Knight in the back with the guitar. The announcers do a good job playing up the fact that Road Dog couldn't help himself because he was still frustrated over the fact that Jarrett injured his throat with a guitar two weeks ago, so he couldn't resist clobbering Knight with one himself. Of course, this results in a disqualification, so your winners are Southern Justice. And now, this is where things get interesting. With Road Dog holding up the broken guitar to taunt Jarrett and Southern Justice, Billy Gunn grabs his partner by the shoulder and turns him around. Billy then starts shoving Road Dog, and they go nose to nose, so X Pac runs out from backstage in an attempt to soothe things. Pac is sporting a bandage over his right eye from the aforementioned guitar shot he received from Jarrett at Breakdown last night, and things may have just gotten worse for him because when he tries to calm Billy down, Mr. Ass accidentally pokes X-Pac in his injured eye. Billy then exits the ring and starts walking backstage, but as he is doing so, China wheels the recuperating Triple H to the ring in a wheelchair. Hunter grabs Billy's arm, but Mr. Ass slaps his hand away. China then stands in front of Billy, but he just brushes past her and heads to the locker room. I have to say, I find it interesting they're teasing another DX split since they just did a similar angle only about a month and a half ago. Or maybe this time it will just be Billy Gunn separating from the group. To be honest, I don't actually recall how this ends up playing out, so I guess we'll find out together. But before moving on from this segment, there is one more interesting note from the Outlaws Southern Justice match. This was actually the final Monday Night Raw match for Mark Canterbury. He debuted with the WWF four years ago under the gimmick of a pig farmer named Henry O. Godwin. Get it? H-O-G? But this is the last match we will ever see him wrestle on this podcast. And that's actually kind of a shame, because I'm probably the one person in the world who thought that Southern Justice had potential. Unfortunately, Canterbury ends up being forced to retire due to complications from spinal fusion surgery that he had last year after the Legion of Doom botched a doomsday device and dropped him right on his fucking neck. And so, because his wrestling days are done, I feel that it's only right to send Mark Canterbury to Wrestler Heaven. Henry Godwin. I'm from Bitters, Arkansas. This here is my hog pen, and them mayor with them some of my hogs. Some folks think hogs is mean. They think they're ugly. And they think hogs are nasty. And they is. But the ugliest, meanest, nastiest hog of them all is me, Henry Godwin. And when I get to the WWF, I'm finally going to be in hog heaven. R.I.P. Mark Canterbury slash Henry O. Godwin. You were, uh, well, you had a long career. 
Also, on a related note, can I just say how much I love those old introductory vignettes, even the shitty ones, if it involves the phrase, when I get to the WWF, then it automatically gets five stars from me because it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. But I digress. After a commercial break, it is time for a submission match, Dan the Beast Severn versus Owen Hart. When we last saw these two together, Severn was acting as Owen's coach for his Lion's Den match against Ken Shamrock at SummerSlam, and Severn left his protege hanging when Owen asked for him to throw in the towel. Also, Severn is from Coldwater, Michigan, about two hours away from the arena, so he gets a nice size pop from the Detroit fans. So the match only lasted for a little more than two minutes before we got an interesting ending. Severn put Owen into a dragon sleeper, and Owen flipped backwards in order to escape. He then picked up Severn and hit him with a tombstone pile driver. Yes, that's right, the very same move he used to almost end Austin's career last year. And by the way, it was the exact same type of tombstone he hit Austin with. Owen picked Severn up and delivered the move by dropping on his ass, as opposed to the Undertaker's version of the tombstone, where Taker goes forward and lands on his knees. Doesn't seem like a big difference, but Owen's version is clearly much more dangerous. And in a direct homage to when Owen almost paralyzed Austin, Severn lies flat on the mat and tells the referee that he can't move. Owen then proceeds to essentially break character as he stops attacking Severn altogether and the referee calls for help. Yes, they're actually doing an angle, playing off the real-life situation where Stone Cold Steve Austin suffered a broken neck. Good times. And in case you're wondering if it's retroactively creepy to hear the announcers use their super serious voices during an injury angle when Owen Hart is standing in the ring, the answer is an emphatic yes. Severin just got dropped right on his head from the, that pile driver. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, well. Severin not moving. Hey guys, Dan Severn's not moving. You're gonna have to stop the match. You can't. Gonna... What's he telling the referee? He can't. Referee Tim why we got it. He's telling the referee that he can't move his arms. Folks, we've got to take a break. Obviously, we'll be, be back. And when we come back from commercial, referees and EMTs are now putting a neck brace on Severn and loading him on top of a stretcher as a regretful Owen looks on. To play up the severity, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler have actually stopped doing commentary entirely, so that was pretty effective. And I will say, for the most part, the fans are actually buying this because they're being pretty quiet aside from a few smarks yelling bullshit. And eventually, the EMTs begin to wheel Severn backstage and we go to another commercial break. When we come back, they finally end up wheeling him out, and we get a slow-motion replay of the tombstone. And I have to say, they did a good job making that spot look real, because much like when Owen hit Austin with the move, it really did look like Severn's head was exposed when Owen hit the mat. You can even hear the Detroit fans groaning when they show the replay, so they definitely bought it. We then quickly cut backstage where they show Severn being loaded into an ambulance as JR says he refuses to speculate on his injuries. Now, you can certainly argue as to whether or not this angle was in bad taste, but I will give credit to everyone involved for making this seem legitimate. I guarantee that I probably believed this back when I first watched this episode in 1998, so kudos to them for that, I guess. 
JR then wraps up the segment by saying, quote, Well, we got to keep going here, folks. Oh, JR, you have no idea how prophetic those words will become about eight months from now. So we then go to our next match, Al Snow versus Vader, who is accompanied by Commissioner Slaughter. You may recall that Al beat Slaughter last week in a boot camp match, thereby winning a job with the WWF, so perhaps Slaughter wants to get a good look at his new hire. Or maybe he wants to do a little bit more than that, because after Al hits Vader with an enziguri, he goes for the pin, but Slaughter grabs Al's foot and pulls him off. Al then grabs head and swings it at Slaughter, and referee Jimmy Corderas stops paying attention to the action in the ring so he can chastise the commissioner. Meanwhile, Al is still holding head, and he nails Vader in the face with it. Al went for the pin, Corderas turned back around, and yes, Vader just jobbed to Al Snow. And it really didn't seem like he wanted to, because it looked like Vader actually kicked out before the three count was delivered, presumably while thinking, I can't believe this is my career right now. But there you have it, Al Snow gets the win thanks to Head, thereby pissing off the commissioner once again. As for Vader, well, let's just say that one silver lining is that he won't have to be jobbing for too much longer. We then quickly cut backstage where we see a frustrated Billy Gunn wheeling his luggage out of the arena, and might I add, he's also still wearing nothing but his wrestling tights, which seems like a bad idea when you're venturing out into Detroit in late September. That's gotta be chilly. After a commercial break, it's now time for what we are told is a first in the WWF, a six-man, four-corners elimination match. Basically, think of it this way. Two guys start in the ring, with the other four men standing on the ring apron, and they can be tagged in at any time. Once someone is pinned, they go back to the dressing room until only one man is left. Not only that, but whomever wins this match will become the number one contender for Xbox European title next week on Raw. Your participants for the match are Edge, Gangrel, D'Lo Brown, Jeff Jarrett, Mark Merrow, and Darren Drozdov. I'd say that's a pretty solid mid-card there, except for maybe those last two guys. For those scoring at home, here is your order of elimination. Number one, Edge and Gangrel were the first two men in the ring, and Edge dispatched him rather quickly in only about a minute and a half with a Maestral Cradle. I'm really surprised they're having Gangrel lose so much when he's barely even been in the company for a month, but then again, I suppose the blood-drinking vampire was never going to be a main eventer. Number two, Jeff Jarrett and Draws were then eliminated together when both men went over the top rope and started brawling, and the referee just counted both of them out. Whoopsie. Number three, the next man eliminated was Mark Merrow. Edge hit him with a top rope Hurricane Rana, and D'Lo Brown then attempted to break up the pinfall for some reason by going for a frog splash onto Edge, but he moved out of the way, and D'Lo hit Merrow instead. Edge then dropkicked D'Lo out of the ring and simply pinned Merrow, so that left us with Edge and D'Lo as the final two men in the match. Edge then leaped over the top rope and hit his very impressive-looking crossbody onto D'Lo onto the floor. However, when Edge re-entered the ring, the returning Gangrel tapped him on the leg. Edge then turned around and saw that the mysterious man from last night was now standing next to Gangrel. D'Lo then nailed the distracted Edge with his sky-high powerbomb and picked up the victory, making D'Lo your new number one contender for the European title that he just lost last week. After the match, Gangrel and the mystery man walked off together through the crowd, and once Edge recovered, he went through the crowd as well in an attempt to catch up to them. So to recap, Gangrel has been trying to get Edge to, quote, come home, and now apparently he's trying to convince him even further by bringing in someone who is familiar to Edge. I wonder who it could be. Hmm. 
When we come back from commercial, it is now time for Vince McMahon to award the WWF title to the new champion, whomever that may be. Once again, Vince is accompanied by Commissioner Slaughter, Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and four police officers. When they make their way down the aisle, we see that a red carpet is now covering the ring, and the Winged Eagle WWF title is sitting inside of a glass case. I'm not sure why the Winged Eagle belt is there, since that particular belt had been replaced by the new, rounder WWF title after WrestleMania 14, but perhaps we'll find out. Vince begins by bringing out The Undertaker, followed by Kane. Once again, Kane lifts and then drops his arms to signal for his fire, but it doesn't go off. Vince ad-libs by thanking him for not doing it, but I'm pretty sure this was a case of the pyro guy fucking up yet again. Dude, you literally have one job. Come on. So Vince begins to discuss who the new champion will be, but then we cut backstage. As it turns out, Stone Cold Steve Austin has indeed decided to join the party, and because Detroit's nickname is Hockey Town due to the popularity of the Red Wings, Austin has decided to show up driving a Zamboni. And so, let's take it to one of the most famous WWF slash WWE interruptions of all time. I think McMahon's got enough security around There's him. There's no question, Undertaker, that both you and Kane deserve to be the WWF champion. The two of you single-handedly covered Stone Cold Steve Austin for the championship. The two of you who have had tremendous oh, battle between the two of you. Okay, so a few things you can't tell just from listening to that segment. Number one, when Austin is driving the Zamboni backstage, he runs over one of the light fixtures and absolutely crushes it, which is pretty funny to see. Number two, when he drives the Zamboni into the arena, he actually runs it into the side of the ring and the impact causes it to visibly move back about a foot or so. I wonder if there was some panic from the ring crew at that moment. Number three, Austin stands on top of the Zamboni, leaps over the ropes, and clotheslines Vince, which is pretty goddamn awesome. Also, somehow, as soon as he starts punching Vince, a fan manages to throw a stone-cold inflatable punching bag into the ring. I have no idea how someone actually managed to throw that thing that far, but kudos to them, I suppose. 
And number four, Austin is obviously arrested by the police officers in the ring as soon as he attacks Vince, and he can barely contain his smile when they escort him up the ramp because the crowd was just eating up this segment so much. In fact, when the cameras follow him backstage, he actually issues a very famous warning to the chairman. Austin is then loaded into the police car as Mr. McMahon follows him backstage and yells for the police to let him go so he can get a piece of him, which Jim Ross astutely points out is easy for Vince to say since Stone Cold is still handcuffed. However, the police drive Austin off to jail instead as we go to a commercial. Now, obviously, if they had just ended the segment there, it probably would have been enough. But when we come back from break, Vince is back in the ring with The Undertaker and Kane. It appears as though he's ready to resume his ceremony and present one of them with the WWF Championship. So let's pick it up from there. We're back live here, folks, now. Back with our presentation, apparently. We're about to present the WWF Championship. However, if you recall, the deal was Undertaker and Kane. You would get the title shot as long as you kept Stone Cold Steve Austin away from me. For three times, three times in less than a week, Austin had brutally attacked me. That's right. So let me say this. You didn't live up to your end of the deal. I'm not going to live up to mine. What? What's he saying, JR? You're going to have to fight for it. On the next pay-per-view, October 18th, you two are going to battle it out for the WWF Championship. That's a judgment day in three weeks. Whether you like it or not. And by the way, since you can't seem to, seem to keep Stone Cold out of your business and mine, good. I'm going to put him in it. Austin is going to be the guest referee. Oh, my God in heaven. What? Austin, I just hope that somewhere your cellmate is telling you all of this right about now. <laughs> because I'm going to be there to watch him suffer the indignity of having to count one of you two monsters to the WWF Championship. So there you have it. The Brothers of Destruction will have to go head-to-head at Judgment Day with Stone Cold Steve Austin acting as the special guest referee for their WWF Championship match. Quite the turn of events. But Vince still had one more announcement for tonight. Because they couldn't protect him, The Undertaker and Kane will have to compete in a three-on-two handicap match tonight against the team of Ken Shamrock, Mankind, and The Rock, or as I call them, the Rock, Sock, and Shamrock Connection. 
Vince then adds further insult to the Brothers of Destruction by saying that it's fitting they're in a handicap match because one of them is handicapped physically and the other is handicapped mentally. Ouch. Taker then grabs the microphone and warns Vince that the next time he disrespects them, it will be Vince who ends up handicapped. Mr. McMahon appears to heed that warning, but then, when both brothers turn their backs on him, he just can't help himself. He flips them both the double bird and mouths the words, Fuck you! But they turn around in time to see him do it. And what commences from there is a pretty spectacular beating. Taker and Kane knock Vince down and start putting the boots to him, and Taker then puts the chairman into a leg grapevine. The Stooges attempt to intervene, but Kane easily dispatches them. Kane then pulls Vince out of the ring and removes the top part of the steel steps, which the Undertaker picks up. With Vince's leg positioned on the bottom part of the steps, Taker lifts the stairs, and, well, you can probably guess what happens from there. And I'm going to play the clip for you here, because we get a legendary call by Jim Ross as the Brothers of Destruction carry out their carnage. So what you just heard was The Undertaker lifting up the steel stairs and dropping them right down on Vince's ankle. And for the record, Vince does an absolutely fantastic job of selling the injury. I'm sure the spot was safer than it looked because presumably Taker hit more of the steps than Vince's ankle, but it looked convincingly brutal, so kudos all around. The Brothers of Destruction then leave the ringside area as Jim Ross plays up the fact that Vince's leg has to be broken. And after a quick commercial break, we cut backstage where Vince is now being tended to by EMTs, but we're told that the only ambulance in the arena was the one that Dan Severn was taken away in earlier, so the chairman will have to wait around for another one. Amusingly, while he's waiting, Mankind shows up with a soft drink and some candy, but somehow this fails to cheer up Mr. McMahon. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was one hell of a segment. Between the Zamboni interruption and the Brothers of Destruction snapping Vince's leg like a dry twig, the whole thing took up about 20 minutes of TV time, but the crowd absolutely ate it up, as you could hear in those clips. Fantastic stuff. If you're a wrestling fan, by now you've probably seen both of these segments at some point, but fuck it, go back and watch them again, because they really stand the test of time. They were awesome then, and they're still awesome now. What more do you need? Not only that, but both segments directly lead into yet another classic moment next week when Vince McMahon is in the hospital, but we'll touch on that in the next episode when Bill from Tuning Japanese joins the show. So that's an incredibly tough act to follow, but we must now go back to the arena for our next match, Mark Henry versus Farouk, with China as the special guest referee for some reason. Apparently they're really going wild with that guest referee thing lately, huh? We were just told Stone Cold would be the guest referee at Judgment Day, and now China is a guest referee in the very next segment. 
I'm starting to get worried that Vince Russo may be running out of ideas. Before the match begins, we flash back to last night on Sunday Night Heat, where China attacked Mark Henry backstage before referees pulled her off of him. Henry then said to her that he knew she couldn't wait to get her hands on him again, so China escaped from the refs and walloped him in the back with a lead pipe. Clearly, romance is in the air. And when we go back to the arena, the world's strongest man plays that up even further by blowing kisses at China as he comes to the ring. Definitely not creepy at all. Early on in the match, Henry hit Farouk with a power slam and went to pin him, but China completely ignored him. Henry then said, come on, baby. But somehow, that didn't do the trick. Henry picked up Farouk for a press slam, but when he lifted him up, China hit him with a low blow. Farouk then landed on top of him, and China proceeded to make a fast count, giving a rare victory to Farouk. This is one of those matches where you go in thinking, I know exactly how this is going to play out, and you're right. However, after the match, a random man in a suit, who Jim Ross identifies as a process server, comes into the ring and hands China an envelope. When she opens it, we see that there are some papers inside, but we don't know what they are. She stares at Mark Henry, tosses the papers on the ground, and heads backstage as Mark scrambles to pick up the documents. Presumably, she was not being offered membership into the Nation of Domination. We then cut backstage again where Vince McMahon is finally being loaded into an ambulance as Mankind continues to shove a cup of soda in his face, much to the chairman's annoyance. The ambulance then drives off, and personally, I think it'd be fitting if Vince and Dan Severn were somehow sharing the same hospital room. I think that'd be a nice pairing. We then cut to Michael Cole, who is elsewhere backstage with Ken Shamrock. And interestingly, Shamrock goes a bit heelish on the hometown crowd as he says, quote, I don't like Detroit much which garners a whole bunch of boos. He then tells Mankind that even though he's going to be his partner tonight, he hasn't forgotten about the fact that he hit him with a chair last night at breakdown. I guess we shall see how that plays out. When we come back from commercial, we get another vignette for Stephen Regal, who, as you may recall, is a real man's man. This week he's using an excavator to dig up the earth as the announcer informs us, quote, Some men move furniture. This man moves mountains. Admittedly, these vignettes have been declining in quality since the first one, but I'm still looking forward to Regal's arrival anyway, mainly for his amazing theme song. We then go back to the arena for our next match, Oddity's members Kurgan and Golga, accompanied by the Insane Clown Posse, versus the Headbangers. And if you're watching on the WWE Network, they completely edit out ICP performing the Oddity's theme song, which is noteworthy because the clowns got a very nice size pop since they are proud native Detroiters. They even got an ICP chant at one point from the hometown crowd, so I guess at least one town likes them. Flashing back to last week, the headbangers turned heel by spraying mace in the oddity's eyes and ripping up Golga's Cartman doll, but you will be happy to know that Golga now has a brand new, much larger Cartman, so it worked out pretty well for him. As for the match itself, it literally only lasts two minutes. Thrasher bounced off the ropes, but ICP tripped him behind referee Jimmy Corderas's back. Kurgan then hit Thrasher with a splash, does that make him a Thrasher splasher? And Corderas turned around to count the pinfall, giving the victory to the Oddities. Nice way to start that headbanger heel turn, huh? After the match, the Oddities and ICP taunted the headbangers from inside the ring, so it appears as though this feud may continue, although I would be perfectly fine if it did not. We then go backstage where Michael Cole is with The Rock, but thankfully Rocky immediately shoves Cole out of the frame and grabs his microphone for himself. 
He says that he isn't too pleased with the fact that he has to team up with the two jabronis he beat last night at Breakdown, but it's okay because he's now the number one contender for the WWF title. And speaking of which, that reminds me of last week's episode of Raw, where it was announced that whoever won the triple threat match would get the title shot on this episode of Raw, and Vince McMahon had even claimed he would act as the special guest ring announcer. So, uh, I guess that's not happening tonight then, is it? Sorry to all you suckers who bought tickets thinking you'd actually get to see a championship match, but in fairness, at least you did get that Zamboni segment. We then cut to Val Venus, who is standing against a wall in some random location. He asks someone off-screen if she found her earrings yet, and of course, Terry Runnels pops her head up from below the frame. She hasn't found the earrings yet, so she goes right back down and out of the picture. Last week, Val couldn't find a kitty cat. This week, Terry can't find her earrings, so I'm starting to think these two may be very unreliable when it comes to their personal property. And when we come back from break, this segues us nicely into our next match, and it's a WWF European title match, champion X-Pac, with his right eye still bandaged, versus challenger Val Venus, who is, of course, accompanied by Terry. A few minutes into the match, X-Pac knocked Val Venus down in the corner, setting him up for a Bronco Buster. However, Terry grabbed X-Pac's leg behind referee Tim White's back, causing him to fall to the canvas. Amusingly, China then came out from backstage, walked over to Terry, and just shoved the living shit out of her, knocking Terry to the ground. Personally, I was hoping that China would ragdoll her like she did when she debuted a year and a half ago, but no such luck. Val then got in China's face, and that provided enough of a distraction for X-Pac to hit him with a baseball slide. Pac and China then both just started stomping the shit out of Val in full view of referee Tim White, so he called for the disqualification. Val Venus is your winner, but X-Pac is still the European champion. Once Pac and China head backstage, a disappointed Val re-enters the ring, but Terry attempts to cheer him up by making out with him. And then, well, let's pick it up from there. Wait a minute, wait a minute, they picked this place of tonsil hockey. Oh, good lord. Well, I don't think we need to stay if we hung on this shot. What the hell's that? Hold us. What? Well, you listen to this ovation. This is amazing. These fans are standing. Hey, Val. I told you. So what you can't tell from listening to that clip is that a golden spotlight is on Val and Terry, and literal gold dust is falling from the ceiling. However, we only got that voiceover, and Goldust himself does not make an appearance in the arena. He is coming back, but I guess we'll have to wait for another day. Also, I find it funny that Dustin Runnels cut a work shoot promo on Raw back in May, where he said that Goldust was a product of Vince McMahon's sick imagination, and the character ruined his life... But now he wants to go back to being Goldust only four months later. But hey, I suppose his life can't get any worse at this point since a porn star is banging his wife, so he might as well give it a shot. We then go backstage where Michael Cole is with Mankind, who continues to mock the people's elbow, referring to the one from last night at Breakdown as the worst move he's ever seen in the 100-plus years of wrestling's existence. I actually somewhat agree with this sentiment here because I also think the people's elbow is terrible, but Mick, when you see the object you'll be using for your finishing move in just a few weeks, 
Let's just say you may end up topping The Rock for worst move ever. Just saying. And when we come back from break, it is now time for our main event, three-on-two handicap match, The Undertaker and Kane versus The Rock, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock. Amusingly, Shamrock and Mankind are the first two men out from backstage, and they start beating the crap out of each other, even though they're supposed to be partners. Shamrock eventually gets the better of Mick and tosses him to the floor, and The Rock then enters the ring, where he then proceeds to fight with Shamrock. Mankind then re-enters and joins the fight as well, so it appears as though these guys have no interest in coexisting. Eventually, The Undertaker and Kane make their entrance, but Rock, Foley, and Shamrock just go right back to fighting each other. Pretty funny stuff. The Brothers of Destruction then toss Foley and Shamrock out of the ring, and they continue to fight each other on the floor. This match is already bonkers, and it's barely even started. Thankfully, Foley and Shamrock finally appear to call a truce, and both men head to a corner so the tag match can officially begin. So Rock, Foley, and Shamrock did end up coexisting for about two minutes. Because once Foley tagged Shamrock in, Shamrock then responded by knocking Mankind down and kicking the crap out of him. The Rock then entered the ring and clotheslined Shamrock, which allowed The Undertaker to attempt a cover on him. I have to say, I've never seen a tag match before where the partners are literally fighting each other more than their own opponents. It's pretty goddamn entertaining, I must say. Things did eventually settle down somewhat, and Mankind played the face in peril for the majority of the match. Once he tagged out to The Rock, it broke down into a bit of a schmoz, with most of the competitors brawling amongst each other. Shortly after that, I knew that the match was about to end, mainly because you could hear referee Earl Hebner loudly yelling, 35 seconds to the wrestlers. Rock and Undertaker then proceeded to badly botch a spot where it looked like Taker was supposed to attempt a choke slam, which The Rock would then counter into a rock bottom. Instead, however, Rock sold it like a clothesline and went down to the ground. Whoopsie. So, of course, what do you do after that happens? You redo the exact same spot because, eh, fuck it. So, shockingly, Taker whipped Rock off the ropes and he went for a choke slam, but, surprise, Rock countered it and hit him with a rock bottom. He then went for the pin, and Hebner counted the one, the two, and the three. I know it may not seem like a big deal now, but having the young up-and-coming Rock pin the Undertaker cleanly is pretty goddamn big. That would have been a huge feather in Rock's cap at this point. And interestingly, we then went off the air with the Undertaker taking Kane to task for not being around to break up the pinfall. It appears that the Brothers of Destruction may not be on the same page, which will certainly benefit Mr. McMahon, since they're due to face each other at Judgment Day in three weeks. So needless to say, this was an absolutely batshit insane episode of Raw, and there's still more to discuss, so with that in mind, it's time to go to... The Wrap-Up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, a pre-taped episode of Raw narrowly beat Nitro in the ratings 4.02 to 3.91. This week, however, with Raw back to being live the night after a pay-per-view, it was not nearly as close. Raw bumped all the way up to a 4.6 rating, while Nitro remained right around the same at a 4.0. 
That now makes two straight victories for the WWF, but for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching on the TNT network. Laparka defeated Super Kahlo, new One Warrior Nation member The Disciple defeated Sick Boy, and for the record, Disciple no-sold all of Sick Boy's offense in this match, beat his chest, and shook the ring ropes because he is now imbued with the power of the warrior. Yup, that's where we're at, folks. Scott Steiner defeated Lenny Lane and Nick Dinsmore, yes, the future Eugene, in a handicap match. Ernest the Cat Miller defeated Psychosis. Chavo Guerrero defeated Disco Inferno. Scott Hall defeated WCW Cruiserweight Champion Kidman in a non-title match. Yes, that's right, Scott Hall, who is currently being booked as an alcoholic, jobbed out the reigning Cruiserweight Champion who just won the belt two weeks ago. Makes sense. Alex Wright and the British Bulldog went to a no contest. Kevin Nash defeated Brian Adams by disqualification. And one fun note here, when Nash was making his entrance... A random child ran onto the ramp and posed alongside of him as Nash just motioned like, eh, whatever. Also, more on fan run-ins in just a moment. Conan and Lex Luger defeated Barry Darso and Hugh Morris, and check this one out if you want to see Repo Man team up with the future General Hugh G. Rection. And in your main event, Bret Hart retained his WCW United States Championship when he beat Hulk Hogan via disqualification. Okay, so Brett versus Hogan may actually be worth watching from a real-life hatred perspective. And in case you're wondering what that wacky warrior was up to this week, he cut another promo, and the highlight of it was that a fan tried to run into the ring while he was talking. Maybe it was the father of that kid? But the guy got tackled by security, of course. Warrior then claimed that when he faces Hulk Hogan at Halloween Havoc, he will become, quote, full-blown. I know what you're thinking, and no, I'm not touching that one. So yeah, this was definitely a skippable episode of Nitro. Other than the main event, it sounds like they pretty much mailed in the majority of this show. Even the craziness with The Warrior was kept to a minimum this week, but don't worry, next week gives us what I believe is one of the most ridiculous segments in the history of professional wrestling, and I look forward to discussing that with Bill from Tuning Japanese, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's finish it up with The Raw Synopsis. So, when people think of the Attitude Era, one of the big buzzwords that usually comes up is unpredictable, and you would be hard-pressed to find an episode of Raw which had more unpredictable, out-of-nowhere content than this one. Not only did Austin drive a goddamn Zamboni into the ring, but The Undertaker and Kane broke Vince McMahon's leg immediately afterwards, and we still do not have a WWF champion. Plus, the show featured a main event where one team spent a good portion of the match fighting each other, Billy Gunn now seems like he may want to leave DX, Dan Severn may have been crippled, and oh, by the way, let's throw in the future return of Gold Dust just for the hell of it. On episode number 39 of this podcast, I made the claim that the September 14th episode of Raw was one of the best of all time, but on a similar note, this episode was likely one of the most chaotic episodes of all time. When comparing Raw and Nitro at this point, it seems like WCW is content to maintain the status quo, where the WWF is just throwing as much shit as possible out there to see what sticks, and somehow, almost all of it is sticking right now. If you want wall-to-wall craziness with some incredible surprises, definitely give this episode a watch, because it is bonkers in the best possible way. A huge thumbs up for this episode, and a big tip of the cap to the WWF for really bringing their A-game since those abysmal Saturday Night Raw episodes. Great stuff. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so... Eh, what the hell. I'll leave you with another clip of Mankind burying the people's elbow from this episode of Raw. Enjoy that, and I'll catch you next time when Bill from Tuning Japanese will join the show to discuss the October 5th 1998 episode of Raw. See you then. Last night at Breakdown in your house, you took on The Rock and Ken Shamrock inside a steel cage. But tonight you have to team with those two men to take on The Undertaker and Kane in a handicap match. Well, two things became very apparent after Breakdown. Number one, mankind swings a mighty chair. You can just ask Ken Shamrock about that. And number two, in the 100-plus years of professional wrestling's existence, last night's people's elbow was the worst move I've ever seen. But I'm not about to let the fact that I did a Mark McGuire impression with Ken Shamrock's head or the fact that I split the people's eyebrow worse than Bill and Hillary Clinton's marriage inauguration day January 2001 stand in the way of tonight's match with Undertaker and Kane. I'm looking for our friendship and mutual respect to more than overcome Kane and Undertaker's prowess and geometric knowledge, and it will be a nice day.